I, I will start. I will start with this. Uh, how many of you know what the uh, what the Babylon Bee is? It is an online satirical. Uh, the, the, there's the Onion, which is really kind of off times irreverent. So uh, the Babylon Bee is the Christian version of that. So so this is from the uh, Babylon Bee. There's a note from the Babylon Bee, and it is this. Seattle, Washington, responding to his owner, Matt, affectionately calling him a good boy for fetching a stick, local Calvinist canine, Rupert, reportedly reminding him that according to the scriptures, nobody is a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> We've been all over this, Matt. We're all corrupted, every one of us, Rupert reportedly told his owner, after stopping mid-stride to address the glaring theological error. How can you call me a good boy when we've all been marred by the effects of sin? <laughs> According to witnesses, the dog went on to lecture his owner for several minutes, stressing how easy it is to forget who we really are in light of God's blinding holiness and our desperately falling nature. Do not call me a good boy. I am a depraved wretch, he added, before picking up his stick and continuing to play. <laughs> oh, will that fit? today's lesson so well okay well that said let me um, let, let's let's dive right in um, we were starting to ask some questions uh, in, last week and I want to kind of continue this so why don't why don't we in the church use the cross as a symbol now before you answer that what you cannot use is the standard answer to that which is, well, we worship the living Christ, we don't worship the dying Christ. Okay, take that one off the table. That's, that's, that's kind of cultural. A couple of brethren have said it. It became cultural. Set that aside. Now, without that old saw, explain to me why it is in the church we don't use the cross, and that can be like why we haven't. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying why we should, although I'm going to make a plea for why I think we should. Why don't we? It's because Jesus came to finish what was started and it was death on the cross that was done. Period. That was the but but that we but couldn't we then use the cross as a symbol of where he finished his work? I don't think so. Okay. Hang on to that. Traditionally, culturally, why don't we use the cross? Because this is one of those kind of uh, uh, battles between us and other Christian groups. Yeah? Because what? Okay, right. So we tend to focus a little bit more on the resurrection. Or that forgiveness was completed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Ah, that forgiveness was completed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, so that, that's why I come up with this question that then says, okay, if he had, if he had gone to the Garden did what he did in the garden, and then went home and died a peaceful death, and then was resurrection, would the, would the uh, atonement have been completed? I got no's. No's. It had to be a public death. It had to be public. It didn't necessarily have to be a cross. Could it have been, he said it had to be a public death. Could it have been a, like a non-suffering quick death no. did it have to be a suffering public death but couldn't he have died in his sleep and then been resurrected and that completed it see we have a sense don't we we're not, we're not sure why but we have this sense yeah yeah is everything else that's required to fulfill all the prophecies? The prophecies had certainly said he would, right? Then, if, he had completed the, if he had suffered in Gethsemane and died on the cross, but had never caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to that rise, that was he wouldn't have done it, even though he did the other two things. You know, he, he needed to fulfill all the prophecies, and the one prophecy that was required after the garden was... That he would be hung on the accursed tree. Right, yeah. Well, wasn't that part of descending below all things and being um, to a place where no one could say he didn't understand where they'd been and that he had to do it 
there had to be a place where he was separated from the president presence of Heavenly Father and was completely alone. Uh, okay, you're you're about three slides ahead of me. Yeah. Right. Right, right. Not just submitting to the will of the Father, but submitting to the submitting to the will of the people. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. See what we do with this? Okay. Again, we have a sense, but we don't necessarily have the words to say we think it needed to happen, but we're not quite sure why. This whole story begins with Adam and Eve falling in the garden, and when they, and when they made their mistake, they felt great shame for it. And because of that, they were taken out of the presence of God. Okay. You're about an hour ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his atonement was an infinite atonement. Right. It wasn't even came That it was already started. In fact, uh, uh, Alma th uh, 13 in the Book of Mormon suggests that we were drawing on the power of the atonement in the premortal life. Mm -hmm. So, so you're right. So there was, but so it was coming. But again, did it have to be a suffering, torturing cross-led death for this to happen? Yeah. Right, but th that's why I say. So, if nothing else, the prophecies were saying it was going to happen, but we're still not getting to why. Uh, of Gethsemane? The tokens in his hands and feet were where? The tokens of the cross. Of the cross, right. Because And that something had happened on the cross and he was going to bear that in his physical body. Okay, yeah. Right. So it had to be the wor worser than the other people's. Yeah. Okay. In the early part of the church, uh, in the in the first uh, few decades of the church being restored, did we use the cross? Yes. We did some, but not much. Do you know why? Because so many of our early converts were coming out of New England, and they were more Puritan-led, and they pushed back against icons and symbols. And, and specifically, they were pushing back against what? Catholicism. That they believed had overused the cross and turned it into kind of a, an item of worship. So it made it kind of an idol. And it looked idol-like. So part of it was a cultural push on the part of, we are Protestants, which means we are what? We are not Catholic. So at the very least, if we are going to use a cross, it won't be a crucifix. With a, with a savior on there, it will simply be the cross. Okay? And, and so this, again, this is coming from kind of Puritan focused thing, but still maintaining the, the uh, symbol. Yeah? I, I just have a question. I, I just looked up in the topic of the cross. There's no reference from the Old Testament to, to the word cross. 
No. Well, hold on to that. And they're going to talk about in Isaiah about or Deuteronomy, uh, the cursed tree, and we'll talk about that. But you're right. Every every word that he's using is talking about being lifted up. In fact, he's saying, "I will be lifted up like who? Like the brazen serpent in for Moses." He's going to say that in John three. Okay, so he's going to say there is a symbolism here. So the reality is, no, he couldn't have gone home and just died in his sleep because it wouldn't have fulfilled what needed to happen. We're just trying to wrap our mind as to why. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting that Christ used the the, the, the symbol of the cross when he said everybody pick up their cross, pick up your own cross, which I thought was very interesting, which was was before he had the association with the cross. He knew what was coming. In fact, he, he had said a number of times, I must go to Jerusalem and be lifted up. He knew what was coming. And again, so yes, it was prophesied. Yes, something happened there. Yes, we have a hard time saying, why did the forgiveness of sins be so tied to the cross? And why, do we have, why have we emphasized Gethsemane? We're not going to denigrate in any way what happened in Gethsemane. We're not. But why have we de-emphasized the cross as well? Yeah. I think not for the church, but for myself personally, when I was very young, the cross was a ooh, you're you're doing something almost bad. But now, I tell you, when I see a cross hanging around somebody's neck at the grocery store or something like that, to me, it is a thumb, yeah, a thumbs up. There's somebody who's at least willing to demonstrate faith. Yes, yeah. right. Claiming a connection with God. And that is a good thing in my mind. Could we, would we upset the theological balance of things if we were more accepting of the cross in the church? Would it actually be more doctrinally sound? Actually it would. And, and I hope you'll get that sense. Again, not for one second uh, putting down what happened in Gethsemane because Gethsemane is what we said it is. But, but in doing that, we have de-emphasized what happened on the cross. And, li and you're going to listen to the Savior's words emphasizing so much the cross. Yeah. And I agree with that. But sometimes I have a hard time when I see the symbol and I think through history, it has been to me... It's been misused, hasn't it? ...misused in atrocities that I would not want to... The so somehow for you, the cross, and, and in terms of uh, if you go into any uh, Islamic areas, the cross becomes a symbol of oppression. And the, you're right, it has been misused and misappropriated in so many ways. Yeah. So just another thought I have, and you said that we don't want to diminish what happened in Gethsemane. There were two obstacles that came about because of the fall of Adam and Eve. It was the separation from God through sin and the separation physically. Yes. Of our separation of, of God spiritually, this was the. There you go. Okay, now we're getting close. You're getting warmer. I think witnesses have something to do with this because there had to be witnesses. But here, I mean, nobody really witnessed what he was going Whatever was going to happen here had to be witnessed as an event, right? What all those people are saying now that are in the missionary work in the hereafter. Why don't we celebrate Good Friday? Because that Good Friday, very early in, in the very in the morning, would have been Gethsemane, and then by then, then the the cross would have been occurring. Why don't the rest of Christendom, especially get into Eastern Orthodox stuff like that? Good Friday is a big deal. Okay, when I was on my mission in England, we didn't tract on Good Friday. It was a it was a holiday. And Palm Sunday. Okay? How come we don't do those? I think it's just tradition. It is tradition and cultural. Yeah, we've just separated ourselves from Protestantism and Catholic Catholicism and said, so we're going to do something different. But I don't think that necessarily. No. In the, uh, in the 50s, uh, 50s and 60s, um, uh, Robert Millet at BYU talks about the fact that the, the church and the brethren had a tendency to, to preach what he called preaching to our distinctives. We're preaching to how we're different from Christianity, not the same. So we were going to separate. If they're doing Good Friday, we won't. If they've got a cross, we won't. Uh, and if they're going to do Palm Sunday, we won't. 
We were preaching to our distinctives. And all of those things, tradition-laden, rich kind of things, by, are there by culture, but not necessarily by doctrine. And so uh, you start taking a look at As we go here, you're going to actually see that jump out. Yeah. So you see that in the missionary discussion. We, we lead off with the restoration. We don't lead off with Christ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, Sister Wiley. I might disagree with it. I know that we do. But I'm not sure for some people out there that, like in the Congo or something like that, the first thing they're wanting to hear about is a young boy in New York. You know, maybe they do. But I think there are going to be times when, when we may find that trying to, as we start preaching the, the restored gospel, they're going to find that we have much more to offer in terms of the Savior and what happened in and the Gethsemane and the cross. Okay, so uh, let's... So hold on to that as an idea, okay? Now, BYU survey. One faculty member gave 110 students in Book of Mormon class the following fill-in-the-blank question without prior instruction on the Savior's atonement. Where did the atonement take place? Of these students, 27% wrote only Gethsemane. 73% wrote Gethsemane and the cross. But when the question was changed in a separate Book of Mormon class to where did Christ atone for our sins, 51% of the students filled in the blank with Gethsemane only, with 49% writing in Gethsemane and the cross. A separate BYU faculty member administered an online survey in which he asked students the following question. Where would you say the atonement mostly took place? A, in the Garden of Gethsemane, B, on the cross at Calvary. Of 752 students, 88% said in the Garden of Gethsemane. And 12% said on the cross. Okay? There we are culturally. We have taught the Garden of Gethsemane. We love the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we are... Uh, we, we have... Uh, we try and picture the Garden of Gethsemane in sacrament meeting. Uh, and, in, and, and we revere the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when we walked into the Garden of Gethsemane a year and a half ago, I felt a palpable wham. Like there was some of the places we'd go in Israel, like this is a cool place. I walked into the Garden of Gethsemane and it was like I'd walked almost through a spiritual wall. There was something very real about that place uh, that I didn't get in some of the other spots. So, other than the tomb. Other than the tomb, yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, at the cross. So, now isn't it interesting then with all of this, we go to 3 Nephi 27, and what does, what does the Savior say to the Nephites? And my Father sent me that I might be what? Lifted up, lifted up on the cross. And after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father. Where is he pointing to? The cross. The cross. To, in John 3, he's saying to Nicodemus, I must be lifted up, meaning lifted up by crucifixion. I must be lifted up. That this was a necessary part. And the purpose of being lifted up in some way was going to be that it, he would draw men unto him, and let me add a comma to that, in a way that had he not been lifted up on the cross, he wouldn't have. Now, do we completely understand that? No. I still can't, I still can't wrap my arms around the fact that why a suffering death on Gethsemane uh, on, and on Calvary was so critical to the process. But, he's, but all the way through, everything I'm reading from the Gospels, all the way through, Paul said that the cross was critical to the redemption of sins. That it wasn't going to be just what would happen in Gethsemane, that it had to be completed on the cross. But this also showed that he was the last sacrifice for sins. Well, and that even the law of Moses providing for the sacrifice of lambs was pointing in this direction. But notice, guys, that the sacrificial lamb is killed humanely. There's nothing torturous about the lambs being killed for sacrifice. Gethsemane was the most torturous, 
pain, it was, it was death by torture. It was the most painful death that man knew how to inflict at that time. Why did it have to be, it couldn't just be a dying, it had to be, it was going to be death, I'm going to be lifted up, which means I'm going to be tortured, which means I'm going to suffer potentially for days. He didn't know, but he... On Calvary, yes. For me, I thought that the entire, the ability for him to take on the sins of men had to do with how much torture he went through on the cross. And it didn't make any sense to me because I knew that in war, men suffered much more torture than he seems to have suffered on the cross. And it didn't make sense to me. Right. Yeah, and so we can't necessarily measure the amount of torture, but we certainly know that it ha- it couldn't be a humane death, that it was gonna there was gonna involve suffering. Okay, yeah. Almost every aspect of the gospel has a physical and a spiritual. Like there's a baptism and there's the confirmation. There we. Oh, there's a two-step process. Yeah, and this seems to mirror that there's the the spiritual and. There you go. Okay. And that sometimes it involves oil in the first step and sacrifice in the, in the second step. Yes. There's going to be something significant about the fact that even the people inflicting the torture on him were beneficial of the sacrifice that he made. Isn't that amazing that he was actually doing it for those that were hurting him? Yeah. So this leads to the judgment. And if you recall, the judgment has two features, the great judgment day and the terrible judgment day. For the great, it's the righteous who are going to have what you call the humane experience. Yes. You don't need to be tortured. You just come before the Lord and He claims you. For the wicked, they're going to have the torturous experience that is like unto what He experienced. Yeah, and we're going to talk about in a second what causes the torture. Where's the real pain? Yeah. There is also another symbol um, on the cross. It's the other two people were not stabbed in the side to where the, there was the bleeding when, the, when Jesus was stabbed. Right. The water and the blood. Right. symbolic of the physical and the spiritual. Sure. Yeah, at least that we know of. I mean, could have happened, but th- this is only being documented for the Savior. Yeah. I think we really have to go way, way, way back and say, what is atonement? Why do we need the atonement? There, yes. And. Yes. There's also a verse, uh, I think it's in John, that says that no greater love. I'm so sorry. But no greater love can one man have than to lay his life down for another. Okay. We we demanded the Savior's punishment. We demanded. We would not accept his atonement, his uh, desire to reconcile our differences, unless he demonstrated how terribly much he loved us. Okay, so that it, so that the crucifixion ended up being a demonstration of of, of his love. Yeah. He said, you know, when when we feel shame, a rejection, reproach, guilt, all of those things, we feel like we're not good enough. And Christ said, "You are, and I will demonstrate." Because I because I have been there. We'll we'll show in a second why it is that that happened. Yeah. Been very important for the people who carried out the uh, crucifixion and the Jewish leaders and all of them to feel that they had been very successful. Well, they did. They had to really feel good, you know, good that they had solved the problem. And uh, I think maybe it's symbolic of our short sightedness when something happened because they obviously didn't have the whole thing. It must have been a horrible time. The the followers of of Jesus were afraid. Yeah. as as we get into this spring you're going to the idea uh, that uh, this group this cult of Christians was worshipping a crucified man was bizarre it was beyond ridiculous that we would do that and Paul exults in it and he will put that back on them okay Uh, we're going to really see that like in 1 Corinthians It's, it's great okay now yeah thinking about that I was writing down I 
I feel this testified to me that the purpose of Heavenly Father creators never intend for us to only live in a status of being a spirit. It has to be always a spirit combined with body, even after resurrection. That's we're gonna always spirit with body together. So all the experiences uh, require both. To be a complete being. Yeah, she's talking about that her, in her experience, Heavenly Father always intends it to be spirit and body, and that there has to be something happening. Well, you're, you're getting you're getting to the right place here, guys. That there's a there's a combination of this. To Nicodemus, he's going to say, as Moses lift, uh, lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so. Isn't it interesting that the Savior in his talking about his atonement experience goes to the cross. He references the cross. The majority of the time in the Book of Mormon that talks about uh, the Savior's atonement, it references the cross overwhelmingly. Only twice does it talk about Gethsemane. And, and again, Gethsemane is what it is. But what we're seeing is that maybe culturally we have de-emphasized and lost something, I think, in missing what the Savior was trying to tell us about what was completed on the cross. If that makes sense. Okay? Now, from that standpoint, so for Paul, Paul is going to say, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Greeks, for Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we declared to you a crucified Christ. We declare to you a crucified Christ. To the Jews a scandal and foolishness to the Gentiles. For them it was about the cross. And it was, in this first century it was about the cross. That was what they, what they drew their, their energy from. And recognized and, and went with that. Okay? So that's 1 Corinthians 18, 118. Now, what did the rest of the world think about a crucified Christ? Lucian, first century uh, Roman writer. Christians have sinned by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself living according to his laws. Further, he was a man whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine for introducing this new cult into the world. That is, and remember, uh, if you're a Roman, can you, can you be crucified? No. This was a death reserved for criminals and slaves. Not Romans. It was considered such a humiliating death that it was something reserved for the worst. This was like the electric chair or something like that, where we would just say, only the really, really bad people in you, and you're gonna work you're gonna say God came down and the God that you're worshiping was electrocuted. It, you know, that just makes no sense. Uh, just from what you were saying, I'm thinking about these people that that have the cult of like Charles Manson or something like that. And we look at them and we think, oh, no. And, and so that's what we're looking at. Yeah, this is a cult. This is a, this is a weird cult. Well, let's keep going. Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist, identified the charges and responded to them. It is for this that they charge us with madness. Christians are crazy for worshiping a crucified man. Uh, charges with madness saying we give the second place of two gods, we give the second place after the unchanging and ever existing God and begetter of all things to a crucified man. How, what kind of idiots are these? Justin Martyr says that they just think we're nuts. Okay. Uh, Minicus Felix wrote, writing uh, in Octavius there was a pagan quip about Christians. To say that a malefactor put to death for his crimes and, and would, the, the cross, of the death-dealing cross 
are objects of their veneration is to assign fitting altars to abandon wretches and the kind of worship they deserve. If you're dumb enough to be worshiping a crucified man, you deserve what you get. That is how you got this massive gulf between just how ludicrous the idea was that, that a God would descend and be crucified. In the pagan world, what happens when a God descends? I mean, have you seen the Avengers lately? <laughs> These guys are powerful and great and they're not submitting to a crucifixion. Okay? Um, so, with, with, that, with that said then, uh, I do want to suggest an LDS possibility. Uh, then we'll go through some of the, the sites and then then let me uh, lay out a give you a view of the atonement. Okay, in my mind, there's one LDS possibility, and we, and you guys are getting there really quickly. You, you thought of the same thing I did. Our revealed healing ordinances, both for the sick and in the temple, involve two parts: the anointing with oil and a sealing. Is it possible that the great atonement of Jesus Christ, the eternal healing reconciliation? might have involved an anointing in the place of the oil press and then the sealing of his death on the cross. That's one possible way of, that I, in my mind that I've kind of reconciled that the atonement may have come in two parts here. An anointing and a sealing. And that it required both parts. If that, if that makes sense. Okay? All right. So that said, a couple of a uh, couple of things to be thinking about. Um, I want to give you a little bit of a. If we pull back just a second, let's talk about where these events took place. Uh, this is an old old picture, and it's it's taken from the the uh, what would be the southeastern wall of Jerusalem, looking down into the Kidron Valley. Um, and this is, and the reason why this view is, is important is because this is where, whether the Savior's Last Supper was up near the house of Caiaphas, or whether it was lower down in the city of, in the old town of city of David, this is the route that they would have taken on their way to Gethsemane. Okay, we're up on the hill. We're going to come down the hill, and then there's this this road that sits right at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And it would have been much lower in antiquity. This has been built up over the years. It was deeper at that point. And then it would head. So the Mount of Olives is up on top up here. Uh, Gethsemane is lower on the Mount of Olives over here on the extreme left. Okay. Now, as he's coming down here, uh, I want you to... The, the, the book of Mark says that when they finished the Last Supper, the last thing that they did was that they sang a hymn. So they sang a song, had a closing song. We don't know what that closing song was. Now, we can guess some possibilities. One of the possibilities that I have for that closing hymn would probably be um, one that might be on his mind a little bit, uh, and is probably the most beloved psalm of all, which is the 23rd Psalm. Okay? And we're going to talk about... Uh, Yea, though I walk, where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. These ancient tombs, one of them is the tomb of Absalom. Uh, these ancient tombs and the cemeteries over there in a, in a valley where there was often shadow is one of the possibilities for the valley of the shadow of death. Other, other groups have tried to say there's a... a uh, a road between two mountains in Jericho, that's also a possibility. But on this night, after dark, as he's making his way here, if, especially if they've sung here, there's some real salience to the idea that he would have said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. No matter what else is going to happen, you, you will be with me. I won't be alone. There's going to be comfort for the Savior in saying, God would never leave me. 
I'm going to walk to the valley of the shadow of death. I won't fear evil because thou art with me. Why? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me when? All the days of my life. Why? Because thou art with me. So, this is, like I say, so we're coming down the mountain here. Here's, the, here's that ancient road. And then on, uh, in Gethsemane, um, there actually, for those who have, have been there or will be there, there, there's two areas. There, one, as you come into the area, there's one on the, on the right, which is a kind of a public area. And then there's one on the left that you have to reserve. And th this is the one on the left. This is the one that we reserve. Um, so that we have about an hour in there. But this is where you walk in and you just feel something very real has happened here. Some of these trees are very, very old, but none of them would have lasted two millennia. Uh, it'd be nice to think that. Uh, as opposed to when you walk into the, uh, the, the uh, where the first vision happened, and there are some of those trees lying there that we know were there at the time of, of Joseph Smith. These, there are no Jesus trees that we know of in Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? Now, where in the garden did this happen? We don't know. Except for one of the things that we need to be aware of is this is Gethsemane, but there were many Gethsemanes. Gethsemane is the place of the oil press. Where would a Gethsemane happen? What would a Gethsemane look like in the first century? It would look like that. For an olive press, what they would do is that they would put it in a cave for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you can sort of see it here. Uh, they, they put it in a cave so that some of the poles that they would use to work the oil press, they could actually dig holes into the cave walls and ceiling so that it would, it would give them leverage to turn the oil press around in there. Okay. Another idea for caves is cold-pressed olive oil is the purest. Yes, and, and cold-pressed meaning it's not subjected to the heat, right? So that's the second reason why you put an oil press in a cave. Because inside a cave you can keep the olives cooler. You can process them at a cooler temperature. Uh, and you have some area in which you can kind of work in there. And so when, as you go around Israel, you can find many Gethsemanes, and they are places of uh, caves where an oil press sits inside there. Does, does that make sense? Okay, does now. Would be within an olive grove that they would take the olives Often, yes. You, you want to you wanna do this as close as you can to the olive grove, just from ease of we're, we can take the olives from here, take it down into the cave, and, and process it down there. Okay, now, does Gethsemane, our Gethsemane, the Gethsemane, have such a place? As it turns out, according to recent research by uh, Matthew Gray at BYU, um, as you enter in, kind of onto the to the left to the left of this church is the Church of All Nations. Okay. Uh, it's one of those places that when Constantine's mom came through a couple of centuries, uh, about the third century, and they wanted to build churches on each one of the hallowed spots. So they'd say, they, they, they would talk to people, they would say, tradition says this happened there. Great, put a church there. And they did that in spot after spot after spot. Uh, and this is the place, they said, yeah, this is the traditional place for the Gethsemane of Jesus put a church there. And they did. Okay? Now, and then, like I say, you, you go to the left of that, up the street, and up behind is the, is the public Gethsemane, and then to the left is the private. Okay? Now, this church, this is the layout of it inside. 
when you come in, has a number of elements. But interestingly enough, guess what sits at the very back of this church? A cave. An olive press at the back of this, down inside a cave, and it looks like that. Now, it would be possible if you are the Savior, well, let, let, let me say one other thing. They have been able to document that this cave was used by pilgrims coming to Jerusalem in the first century as lodging area. That they would come and stay in this, uh, they could sleep away from the elements if they were going to come at, at feast time or Passover time. Okay? So we know that it was used publicly. If you're, if you're Jesus and the disciples and you're going, to be, you're going to spend the last couple of days of your life in Jerusalem, he started off in Bethany, came down, did the triumphal entry. Why might he not go back to Bethany? Because Lazarus was at risk. They were trying to kill him as well. So he would need a place to hide so they could stay close to the temple and a place that they could be. Uh, it makes sense since this sits within there. This, this becomes a very intriguing possibility for uh, a possible site of the atonement. And, and what it does is says, he, remember when he says, I'm going to bring you in here and then I'm going to have the disciples stand watch while I go further and pray? That could have worked a couple of ways. He could have had the disciples stay inside the cave and he goes out to have privacy. Or it's very possible that he could have said, you guys wait out here and I will go down in here to pray. But it would have given them some separation. And it really makes some sense to me that, and it also would have given them a cover of darkness and a way, place to hide because the Jews at this point were desperate. He just shut down the temple. They were looking everywhere for him. This would have given them some privacy and protection while this was taking place. Do we know for sure? No way we know for sure. But it is interesting, and Matthew Gray uh, is pretty... He says, I'm very, very compelled, given all the evidence, that this is a very real possibility. Yeah. In, the, in the sequence of things, then the arrest about soldiers, I would assume would have been an open area. Yeah. Right. And so it would have taken Thomas to say, if you guys are going to try and find Jesus all by yourself, you're not going to find him. I know exactly where he is, and I will take you to that place. Judas. 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 Yeah, what did I say? Thomas. Thomas. Man, I want to make that. Yes. I doubt that. Too. Yeah, you doubt that too. <laughs> hey, <laughs> yes, no. Judas would have known exactly where they were, and they wouldn't have found it on their own. So it gives you some idea of hiddenness. Okay, so that that becomes an intriguing spot for this. Okay, uh, he is then taken uh, from here, and we know that. Um, and, I don't, and I'm not going to go through all the details of the, the trials and all of that. that. That you can read, and I think we've kind of worked through that generally. But I want you to see kind of where the layout is. Uh, if, if we're looking at the old, we're standing up here. This view of, of Jerusalem is up on the extreme west side, <coughs> looking down over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in the background here, this is the Mount of Olives, in the very background of, over here. Uh, so now you get... Coming up close here, we have the temple. Gethsemane would be down behind this, farther down inside the Kidron Valley. Uh, to the north uh, east up here, it, this one is the, is the uh, uh, Antonio Fortress that would hold some of the Roman citizens. It's there are two possibilities for the trial uh, with Pilate. Um, he could have been doing it in the uh, San Antonio Fortress. That would have been a possibility here uh, and close by. Um, but the main garrison of the Romans was actually right down here in the extreme bottom in, the, in this southeast corner. Right down in here. This is where the Roman garrison was. Why? Because this is, this is the palace of Herod just next to it. 
this was built by Herod the Great. Uh, his son, Herod Antipas, who sometimes would come into town, Herod is up in, in the Galilee. He's more up in Sepphoris. And in, uh, so he's up there. So most of the time, uh, Herod Antipas is not here, building the palace by his dad. It makes, it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people that Pilate could have been given this spatial area here in Herod's palace to, to live and to be able to actually then interview Jesus during the trial. Okay? Pardon me? Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas' house is, if you come around the corner here, it would be like, it's over here. Okay? I know that looks like the wall over here, but it comes around the corner, heading towards the old city over here, and Caiaphas is over here. Okay? So this is, this is Herod's... Um, and he named these tower, one of these towers after his wife and something like that. Anyway, um, but what that gives us an idea of then is that if this is the case, and this is kind of where we are, then you look very carefully, and outside of this, this is where the beatings uh, in this uh, corner, this is where the beatings of the Savior might have then taken place, and the flogging, and then when they get done, now he's going to present them to the people. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And if that's the case, then this right here, this little, this gate right here begins to, this is the spot right there. It's this, it's this uh, gate in here. There's a long stairway that, uh, the stairway is gone, but uh, when you're in Jerusalem, you can actually see the wall. You can see a little bit of the footings of this stairway. Um, this is where he probably, there's one possibility for where he would have been presented. This road leading right along the, the, the uh, western wall outside the Herodian palace is, goes directly to Bethlehem. If you follow this road for five miles, you'd get to Bethlehem. It, is a common, it was a common thoroughfare in the time. Okay? And, and, that, and so you follow this pathway up here and you swing around the corner over here at the, in front of these towers and this area right up here in the north corner here was the stone quarry where uh, wealthy people were putting their tombs where they had dug up uh, rocks to build the temple and, and this, it, this becomes Golgotha over here. So the, uh, unfortunately, if, if you go to Jerusalem today and you're going to go down the Via Della Rosa, which is the way of the cross, and you're going to follow, they've got, they've got you coming from here and you're going to wind along these streets here, go along here, and then you come out here, okay? Uh, this is a more probable route. It doesn't wind it through the town, especially when you don't know what you're going to stir up among the people. You're going to come up here, swing around the corner, and that makes the, the crucifixion site then over here on these, outside the city walls. Okay? Uh, as it turns out, where, so where was he buried? Um, the traditional site for Catholics is this place, it's the, it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, where there's a traditional stone where his body was prepared, and then inside this was where the tomb was laid. And we have tended in, in most of Christian gym to say, nah, it's the garden tomb, it sits over there, right? Uh, this was the place that uh, Constantine's mom built the church over the side of this, and we said, well, could be one, could, could be the other, okay? Uh, researchers at BYU are now kind of saying, well, you know what, uh, about, about uh, 40 years ago, they decided they would do some renovations in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they were actually able to get down underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to look at, at underneath, and what they found was first century tombs that would match almost exactly uh, where the Savior might have been. Okay, so this becomes a real possibility. It could be that she got it right, and that she actually tortured that there were uh, priests that were tortured to death to give up the site um, 
in order to, to get that because she really wanted to put the church there. So uh, this puts traditional Christians off just a little bit because the noise and the cacophony in here is unbelievable. As people are reciting the rosary and, and they're kind of chanting and all of that as they wind their way in here and then down to where the tomb is. But anyway. Helena, Helena was a Christian though. Why would she have killed because she, Helena needed to know exactly where the, she wanted to know where the tomb was. And they said, we're not going to tell you where the tomb was because you'll build a Christian church on top of it. So, they, so then she had them tortured until they finally gave it up. Okay. And that's when they built this church. Okay? But those were not Christian priests that... Uh, no, they were Jewish. Oh. They were either Jewish or else they were pagan. They had built a pagan temple on top of it. Absolutely. Oh. And, and the pagan temple had to go. Right, exactly right. Pardon me? On top of it. It's right there. Right here? Yes. Yes, right. It's right there. Okay. I know. I love the garden tomb as well. Um, and it could be there, but it could be the other. And from the garden tomb, you can look over the fence and see traditional Golgotha, which is now a bus stop for uh, Palestinians. And the bus fumes are, are destroying the face of traditional Golgotha. That's close to the gate. The gate to Jocelyn. Uh-huh. It is. And there's a, there's a, the traditional garden tomb site. Okay. Um... All right, so, oh boy, we're almost way out of time here. Um, the, the, the one thing, I didn't want to go through a detailed piece on uh, the crucifixion other than the, the one, the one uh, detail that I will add is that as archaeological evidence suggests, when we talk about the wounds in his hands and in his feet uh, at, at the crucifixion, um, they have found some recent uh, crucified, the skeletons of slaves who were crucified uh, and amazingly enough the 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 uh, nail on the feet does not go through the top of the foot it, it came through the side and in fact one of the skeletons they've got it was so embedded into the bone that they could never remove it so the nail is still in in the skeleton that they have so it's possible in the way that we know by restoration that there wasn't just one hole in the hand that, that they also drove another nail in his wrist right well what's that yeah that's a good question I don't know president do we know what nope <laughs> that, that's a good question we don't know That they would they would need to have the weight of the wrist bone. It, 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 it really would, yeah. The, the, they're, feeling, they're feeling the prints. It doesn't say exactly where the prints are. The hands and feet, right? So, so that's why I say there, there may be a lot to this that, that we don't know. Certainly, right? Okay, well that said. Um, so, let, so let me, so again, we come back to our original question. Why the cross? What's the purpose of the cross? And how did the atonement, how does the atonement work? Well, let me, again, you guys, are, you guys have been getting this. Uh, the great plan of happiness uh, starts, of course, in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and then we get the fall uh, for Adam and Eve. Now, what was the consequence of, of the fall? Yes, separation from God. 
Now, we tended to talk about uh, the fact that uh, they were going to have to, uh, they, 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 they were eating fruit, now they're having to dig for vegetables kind of thing. They're having to, okay, we're being able to eat here, and now we're going to have to till the ground. There's going to be thorn and noxious weeds and stuff like that. And for women, there's going to be childbearing and stuff like that. But what was the most painful aspect of the fall? Separation. The separation from God. Think about everybody that's described having some encounter life after life or uh, something like that, and they talk about encounters with God. What do they describe? Warmth, light, love, power. I mean, just I, we don't want to leave this ever. We just feel so. Imagine being able to walk through the garden with the sa with the Savior and, and the Father, and then you're suddenly separated from that. That pain of separation, that pain of distance, had to be the greatest pain of all. I don't think there's a pain that would match that craving to want to be there with them and yet to somehow now be out of their presence and be separated. So really the pain, the greatest pain of all is separation for God. So if we were, if we were going to say to Adam and Eve, uh, give us a good definition for what is sin, getting out of the way of transgression, what is the definition of sin Definition, definition of sin would be what? Any, any behavior that does what? Separates us from the presence of God. Does that make sense? That that is the most painful, that the natural separation from God brings incredible pain. It's like a natural law. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm thinking that while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel came to support him. But on the cross, he says, no, why is Yep. He's all by himself now. Yeah, hold on to that. Because that, that is going to be, that's part of how the, that's part of what happens at the cross. You're right, you're right on top of it. Okay? So that's separation from God. Now, remember, at the Last Supper, he's going to say to the, the disciples, the hour is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home, and you will leave me alone. Because my Father is with me. I can handle my friends leaving me because the Father is with me. I still have his presence. Can you hear it coming? Mark's account. Around three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which is basically, we have translated it, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The pure power of that is, Dad, you have left me. Suddenly, what has occurred? The separation from God. And when the separation from God happens, what then is felt? All of the pain and abandonment and loss and terror, the natural consequence of separation from God. Now, at what point along the way, we don't know. But here's what is amazing to me, and wow, we're going to run out of time. We talked about uh, earlier that the, the psalm that they might have sung was the 23rd psalm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I don't think we are as aware as we need to be. He is quoting, Eloi, Eloi, Lame Samachthani, is a direct quote from the 22nd psalm. So, a couple of days ago, I went, when I realized that, I went back to look at the 22nd psalm and put on your seatbelts. <laughs> Oops, went wrong way. Here's the 22nd psalm. You're welcome to find... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Get a sense of his sense of loss and betrayal. Because this, this is what was going through his head. 
Even though in, in the 22nd Psalm it's put in the words of King David, this matches, I believe, what was going on with the Savior because it is so, so full. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. We, we know that crucifixions were not high up on tall poles. You only needed about uh, 48 inches. That, and that would have been preferable to have them there because you wanted people to come look them in the face and taunt them, not be way up there. So it was all very, very low down. Um, and that's why I believe there's a very real chance that when Paul says uh, he was hung on the cursed tree, that it would have been just as easy to take the crossbar and put it on an olive tree and have him right there. And I, I believe he was crucified on a tree. Okay, that's my own belief. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And then listen to, see if you can remember this. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. The exact words of those from the Sanhedrin. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Think of the, the baptism of John. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. I'm just kind of hanging out here. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 22nd Psalm. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. He's still waiting for deliverance. I have done this. What's the plan? Am I, do I just die? Is there a possibility that this is the moment that you step up and you, and you rescue me? Is this, is this how this works? I don't think he knows. There's a sense of confusion here about I'm going to be lifted up, but I don't know what the next step is. I, maybe I'll die and then there'll be an immediate thing right in front of everybody and the kingdom of God happens right now. I don't think he knew. There's at least a suggestion that he's still guessing. And certainly as a mortal man and going through this kind of anguish, it's easy to see how he would be doing that. My precious life delivered me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. That was staggering to me. I've been reading that through that the last couple of days. Just how possible real this might be for the 22nd Psalm. Okay. So now let's come back. If sin is the separation from God, what is happening here on the cross is... The atonement, which would be the at-one-ment. We are being brought back into the presence of God or opening that thing. And that's going to be reconciliation with God. Does that make sense? That, it, that when the Father withdrew. Was it the Father that put all of the pain and anguish of Gethsemane and the cross? Was it us that did it? Or is it the natural consequence what happens when man is separated from God that the horrors of, of Lucifer and all the demons of hell and all of the pain and suffering could wash in but it could only happen if God removed himself. That's what I believe happened 
in a two-part process in Gethsemane and on the cross when you're separated from God. That's why he says in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I suffer this, but if you don't, you have to suffer this. You will suffer the separation from God if you don't accept my gift. Because that's the natural thing that happens. Okay? So, seen another way, and I just want you to kind of uh, keep this in mind. We tend, brothers and sisters, to see sin as a crime. For instance, let's say that you're out driving, the, the, the speed limit says 70, and you're caught going way too fast. We tend to use this analogy, and, and we say then, the fine must be paid, there must be a punishment for broken laws. Anytime laws are broken, we must impose a fine. That somebody has to pay because a law was broken. Jesus pays the fine because we can't pay it. Does this sound familiar? It's incredibly Protestant, but okay. Jesus pays the fine. So in that case, mankind actually ends up being a wretch, like the Calvinist dog, <laughs> right? Mankind are criminals, and God is to be feared, and Jesus is acting as the shield to protect us from an angry God who is angry that his rules got broken. Book of Mormon calls it justice. Because that's what they understood at that level. Okay? Now, is there another way of looking at this? Let me suggest this. And I think it is. I think this is what was restored by Joseph Smith. This is what we find in Moses 7. Um, this is one of the plain and precious truths that Joseph Smith restored to the earth. And that was the nature of God and how he works. That sin is a wounding. Not a crime. Speeding results in a crash. What is God trying to prevent by giving us laws? Pain and death. Not like I'm going to put out arbitrary rules and then get mad because you broke them. I'm trying to prevent you from hurting. I'm going to give you things that will help bring the law of happiness, not the law of pain. I want you to obey so that you won't crash and hurt yourself and other people. So if sin is a wounding, Jesus helps heal earth wounds. That's his job. So the laws and commandments transform us into beings who can love and can live in his presence. That's what I think this is. That's what I think the restoration of the gospel is, is a God who weeps. To quote Terrell Givens. Terrell Givens. A God who weeps over our pain. Not because he's hoping we get ours and we'll stop doing it. It'll be a deterrent. Simply because he's hurting because he's tried to prevent us from hurting like this. And it happens anyway. That, I think, is the message of the atonement. I think that's another formula. Sin equals guilt, shame. Yeah. And then so it's the atonement is restoring us to our original value. It's bringing us back. Salvation means to heal, you know, and so it's the healing of the wounding. Yeah, and and that's why the Savior said, "I will draw men unto me, that I may punish them. No, that I may love them and draw them close, as a hen gathereth her chicks." Okay. All right. That said, then, I want to finish today. Hopefully I can pull this off here. <clears throat>